On the back of the page that you have, uh, your notes from Micah, I've got a little bit. It's less than we've had the past few weeks. But I want to read this as an introduction to the book of Micah. It begins this way, Revival rarely outlasts a generation. And thus there is poetic significance in the fact that Micah follows Jonah. As the echoes of the book of Jonah die away, the Ninevites are in sackcloth and ashes, humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God. But by the time Micah writes his prophecy, the Assyrians have gone back to their warlike, wicked ways, and the king of the north is on the march. The doom of Israel, suspected and feared by Jonah, is approaching. The Assyrian troops are about to terrorize the land with their atrocities. When Micah picked up his pen, Samaria's doom was assured. Nor could godly King Hezekiah sufficiently stem the tide of apostasy in Judah to save his land entirely from the savagery of Assyrian invasion. Micah was a younger contemporary of the great prophet Isaiah. While Isaiah was a courtier, Micah was a countryman. We know nothing about his uh, about him except that he was a Morisite and that he prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He was primarily a prophet to Judah, although Samaria fell briefly within his line of vision. He indicated that Samaria's doom was inescapable because her wound is incurable, and her doom came, just as Mike had predicted. After his pronouncement about Samaria, he concentrated on Judah. It was just a day's journey from Micah's hometown to Jerusalem, so he's aware of the sins of the capital as well as the sins of the countryside. Everywhere he looked, he saw the sins of his people, calling down inevitable judgment. Micah saw Hezekiah, a godly descendant of David, aided and encouraged by Isaiah, fighting a losing battle against entrenched injustice, apostasy, and wickedness in high places. Micah could see that Judah, as surely as Israel, would come under God's heavy hand. But his vision was not restricted to imminent retribution. In the dim and distant future, he saw hope. Ruin was on the way, but so was redemption and the reign of the coming king. On the other side, you have, as we've done each week, an elaborated outline. It's really good. I really like it. But for time's sake, we're going to use the simple outline tonight. And just take a few uh, a few minutes to look at the book of Micah. The book of Micah primarily divides itself into three messages. Uh, you'll see them at uh, let's see here, verse number one uh, of chapter number one. It says, "The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morasite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem." Notice this: "Hear, all ye people." Now, if you were to look over at chapter 3, you see that phrase again. And I said, Hear, I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel. If you look in chapter number 6, you'll see it again. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. And so there's sort of three sections to the book of Micah. Three messages that God gave to Micah. Now, the first thing you're going to notice, and we've sort of titled the lesson, A Tale of Two Cities. Because he pronounces judgment upon Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, you sort of have to have, you don't have to have a great memory, but you sort of have to have a little bit of one as you study the Bible and the minor prophets in particular, because you'll have to remember that Samaria is the capital of the nation of Israel. It's the center of calf worship that was going on in that time. You remember that uh, Amos in particular really blasted the calf worship that was taking place in that day, and Hosea pronounced judgment upon it as well. That was taking place in Bethel and in Dan and in Gilgal, but Samaria was the capital of Israel. It was their economic center. The temple was at Bethel, but Samaria was their economic center and their political center. And then, of course, the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the capital of the southern two tribes, the nation of Judah. Uh, most of us are familiar with at least some remnant of the history of Jerusalem. We know uh, that Jerusalem is the place where David reigned from after he took uh, authority over the entire uh, 12 tribes of Israel. We know that Jerusalem is the place where Christ is going to rule uh, from during the millennial reign. Uh, so the city of Jerusalem is very significant. But in condemning these two nations, he, he calls them by the names of these principal cities. And the reason is because uh, both of these cities sort of summarized the problem God saw with 
the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. In Samaria, there was open and unabashed idolatry. I mean, there was no bones about it. There was no uh, no covering it up. Jeroboam the first had set up an idolatrous uh, priesthood and an idolatrous uh, form of, of religious worship. They were pretty unashamed uh, in, in their idolatry. Judah, however, was the place that God had ordained for worship to take place in Jerusalem. There they had the Temple of Solomon. That was the place where once the glory of the Lord had filled the temple so that the priests could not minister. And so their hypocrisy and their idolatry took a little bit more subtle of an approach. They had true mosaic worship. They, they had the house of the Lord. They had the sacrifices. They had the true priesthood. But within their hearts, they were still committing sin and offering things in hypocrisy. They were still doing it for their own purpose, for their own uh, benefit, for their own advantage, and they were doing it only as an outward form of worship and not as an inward expression of a love for the Lord. And so God condemns both of these, and that's what we're going to deal with first. We see a warning message in uh, chapter number 1 and in chapter number 2, and this is a, me a message that judgment is coming. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that, that the book of Micah, in my opinion, is probably the most poetic of all the minor prophets. And uh, there's certainly power in poetic language. But that's the reason that some of this is going to seem a little unfamiliar, but you kind of have to learn how to both read it and also read through it and into it and sometimes even past it and see what God's trying to tell us in it. Verse number 2 says, Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft, as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Now remember, Jacob is a name collectively for the northern ten tribes. He's saying for the nation of Israel's transgressions, all this is taking place. And what is their transgression? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? So we see the judge appearing. You see God stepping out of heaven and coming in judgment and in might and in terror to deal with his people. That's the poetic language that, I mean, Mike is describing what he's seeing. He's seeing all this take place. and He's seeing that God is coming not in kindness and meekness, but is coming in judgment and in wrath. But the thing that grips my attention is the phrase at the end of verse number 5. It's not an astounding thought that the transgression of Jacob would be Samaria. I mean, Samaria is sort of representative of all their idolatry. But it's this next phrase that really sort of unsettles me. What are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Can I, can I paraphrase that without doing damage to the Scripture? You remember that the high places in the Old Testament and the groves were centers of idolatry. And basically what the Lord is saying is this, where is the place that you sin the most? He says it's in the house of the Lord. Well, that is an unsettling thought to think that even our very worship could be abhorred by the Lord. I understand that, uh, and if we wanted to preach this direction, we could preach this direction. There's a lot of sensual and worldly worship in the world today. We talked a little bit about that last night when we preached on Abel and how his offering was more excellent than that of Cain's. Uh, he offered that which was uh, established by the pattern of God in the Garden of Eden and not which that, that which would appeal to sensual and worldly lust, certainly, if you had a plate of vegetables in front of you or a dead, slain lamb laying uncooked, you know, uncleaned upon table. I mean, I don't know about you, but I know what I'd pick. I'd pick the vegetables. I'm not a vegetable guy. I mean, the the I eat macaroni. That's a vegetable, right? But, uh, you know, Cain offered that which pleased himself. And because it pleased himself and he thought God's like him, he thought it pleased God. But the problem is, God's not like us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So he tells us what he requires of us. That way there's no guesswork, just as he told Abel. We could preach about the contemporary movement. We could preach about the quote-unquote praise and worship and things like that. But I don't really think that's the message here. 
I don't think that the temple at Jerusalem was a loose environment. I do believe the temple at Bethel was a loose environment, but I don't believe the temple at Jerusalem was a loose environment. You can imagine the the uh, the inhabitants, the nation of Judah, when they hear this judgment pronounced upon Samaria, them saying, "Oh yeah, we knew there was a problem up there. Oh, have you seen the way they worship up there with the temple prostitutes and with the 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 brazen calf and and the false altar?" Then God turns and looks at them and says, "Just because you have the temple, that doesn't mean you're right with me." And I'd say this, just because we have the right Bible and the right music and the right standards, and it's not to say that, that we can't have the right Bible and the right music and the right standards. We should. We're expected to. It's certainly wrong to not have those things, but it doesn't make us right just because we have those things. It doesn't mean we're okay just because we have all the outward form and all the pomp and circumstance. And so we see the judge appearing. Then look at verse number 6. We begin to see the nation's judged. He says, Therefore I will make Samaria as an heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard. And I will pour down the stones thereof in the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. Now what he's saying there, Samaria was situated upon a hill. Isaiah called it the crown of glory. And it was situated on a hill and overlooked a big fertile valley. The Lord says, I'm going to tear the stones down from that high place. I'm going to discover the foundations. You're going to see the foundations of the city of Samaria. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces. And all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of an harlot. And they shall return to the hire of an harlot. What he's saying is this. Samaria was built with, with filthy money. It was built through that which is sensual. And so I'm going to tear it down and I'm going to give it back to those that are filthy and those that are sensual. Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. For her wound is incurable, for it is come unto Judah. <coughs> he is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Now, what is the prophet saying there? In verse number 8, the prophet is is viewing what's going to take place, and it troubles him. And he's saying, I'm going to go about wailing and, and, and howling and naked. I, I'm troubled. I'm moved by what I'm seeing. Samaria is being destroyed. Why? Because her wound is incurable. Like a terminal cancer, she cannot be saved. Now, I don't know when this line is crossed in a person's life, but I do believe a person can cross a line where the only thing that can cure them is the judgment of God. I do believe a person will cross that line in their life. I don't know where it's at. I don't know that it's at the same place for every person. The benevolent and all-knowing heart and mind of God knows exactly where that line is. But for Samaria, nothing could cure them. But here's the great lamentation. He says, for it has come unto Judah. Not only was this a terminal cancer, but it had spread. Now it was affecting not just the false seat of worship, but the true seat of worship. And then he says this, He is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Who is the He? Well, the He is the Assyrian army. You remember what took place during the reign of Hezekiah when the Assyrians, they had come like a, like a steamroller uh, through the northern ten tribes, and they, with a scorched earth policy, they came right to the gates of Jerusalem. You remember how Hezekiah took the letter of threatening that they had given him and spread it out before the Lord and how God spared uh, the city of Jerusalem even though many of the Judean towns had been taken and sacked by the Assyrians. That's what we're seeing in verse number 9. Then something interesting happens in verse number 10. Now, we're going to read it and then I'm going to read something out of a book uh, and I hope that's okay, but I, I, that's the best way I can explain what's about to happen in these verses. He says this, Declare ye it not at Gath, weep ye not at all. In the house of Afra roll thyself in the dust. Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Saphir, having thy shame naked. The inhabitants of Zanan came not forth in the morning of Beth Ezel. He shall receive of you his standing. For the inhabitant of Maroth waited carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord under the gate of Jerusalem. O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For three transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Therefore shalt thou give presents to Moorish Gath. The houses of Axib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. 
Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitant of Merishah. He shall come unto Adjalam, the glory of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't understand that when I first read it. But this is where I get a little help from somebody uh, can sometimes help you. I want you to listen to what this commentator says about this passage of Scripture. He says this, Micah describes the ruin of the southern part of Judah by the invading Assyrians in 701 B.C. We just read that in verse number 9. They swept through the land and took 46 cities, but they could not take Jerusalem because God protected them. Micah used a series of puns based on the names of the cities and their similarity in sound to familiar Hebrew words. For example, Gath is similar to the Hebrew word for tell. Thus he wrote, tell it not in Gath. Beth Ophrah means house of dust. Thus he wrote, roll in the dust. The people of Shafir, Shafir means pleasant and beautiful, would look neither beautiful nor pleasant as they were herded off as naked prisoners of war. The roll call of cities goes on. The citizens of Zanan, which means to come out, would not be able to come out because of the danger. Bethizel means the house of taking away, and the city would be taken away. Meroth is related to myrrh, maros, the Old Testament word in the New Testament, myrrh, and means bitterness, and the city would experience bitter calamity. Since Lachish sounds like the Hebrew word for a team of swift horses, he warned them to harness their horses to the chariots and try to escape. Micah came to his own city, Morasheth, which sounds like a Hebrew word meaning betrothed and brides were given farewell gifts. In other words, the town would no longer belong to Judah, but would leave home and belong to the invaders. Since Aksib means deception, the connection is obvious. And Marasha sounds like the word for conqueror, and the town would be conquered by the enemy. One commentator put it this way. He said of Gath to tell it not in Telltown. He said of uh, Beth Ophrah to roll in the dust in Dust Town. He said of Shafir that there'd be no beauty in the town of beauty. He said of Zanan, the place of coming out, that no one would be able to come out and leave. He said in Bethazel, the house of being taken away, they would be taken away. He said in the house of bitterness, the place of bitterness, Meroth, they'd experience great bitterness. And in the place of the hitching of horses, they'd do well to hitch their horses. When he came to Morasheth, He's saying that they'd be taken away. Rather than being, having gifts brought to them, they would have gifts taken from them. Said of, uh, said of Exib, meaning deception there, deception, there would be falsity in false town. And Merishah, in the place of conquering, they would be conquered. And so through these puns, really what Micah is doing is telling us a story of how tragic that it would be to see these places that were characterized by these thoughts have these very thoughts turned against them. All throughout the first chapter, he's dealing primarily with judgment, judgment, judgment. And it ends the first chapter in verse 16 by saying this, Make thee bald, and poll thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee. You remember it said about Absalom? that they pulled his hair. You know what that's kind of similar to? Like locks of love. You know what I'm talking about. But when people, when, when a lady has real long hair and she'll cut it off and donate, she's pulling her head. And what he's saying is this, as an act of humility and contrition and shame, you ought to shave your head and shave it to the extent that your destruction is how bald like the bald eagle. In chapter number two, uh, Micah begins to Say this, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. He's describing why judgment is coming upon them. He says this, that they lay in bed and try to devise ways to rob from others. You remember the nation of Israel had uh, sort of a, an unusual economic uh, plan. They had sort of a, a new real estate model of any other nation. When they came out of uh, Egypt, the Lord gave different areas to different tribes. He said, this land doesn't belong to you, it belongs to me. So you're welcome to sell it and trade it and do anything you want. But every 50 years during the Jubilee year, all the land's going to go back to those that truly own it. Well, 
what Micah is saying here is that you're devising ways to rob people of that which belongs to them. You're, you're trampling upon those that can't protect themselves. He says, and they covet fields and take them by violence, and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. He says, You've been able to entrap everyone else, now I'm going to entrap you. In that day shall one take up a parable against you, and lament with a doleful lamentation, and say, We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our field. The way that you have taken advantage of others, God says, I'll take advantage of you. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. He's saying there'll be no one to represent you. Prophesy ye not. Say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame. So it begins dealing with covetousness in the first five verses. But in verse number six, he changes the accusation, and now he begins to talk towards the false prophets. They were saying, prophesy not to the true prophets, uh, that they take, shall not take shame, saying that your message is hurting people's feelings, and uh, you need to be quiet. O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly. This is sort of the moment that Amos experienced. You remember that, uh, I believe it was Ahaz, I, I may have that name wrong, but uh, the high priest that was there uh, in, in Bethel told Amos, said, why don't you go back to Judah and prophesy? Go down there, eat your bread, prophesy, and, and it won't bother anyone, you'll be happy. Evidently, Micah experienced the same thing. Because no doubt it was against him they were saying this. Don't prophesy. Don't preach the way you're preaching. Don't tell us what you're telling us. It causes shame. It's a disruption to our leisure and to our comfort. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord's not straightened. He's saying, in other words, you can't disquiet or quiet the Spirit of the Lord. These are his doings. Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly. You know, we ought never get upset when the Lord convicts us. We ought not get upset when the Lord convicts us. He does only that which will be for our good. We may not like what we hear, but we need what we hear. Even of late, my people has risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely, as men averse from war. I, I struggled a little bit with that verse. It took me some time to get my mind wrapped around it. But I, I sort of sat down on the bench beside Micah, and I watched what he watched. And what he's saying is, like a soldier returning home from war, those that, that ought to be your mercy and, and those that ought to be your, your saviors in this society, it's like you reach out and grab their coat and rob it away from them while they're walking by. You know, the Lord had mercy and still has mercy because of those that are poor and afflicted and those that can't help themselves. I understand that much of modern-day Christianity is enamored with a social gospel. And I think we have to be very, very careful that we don't allow a social gospel to rob the power of the real gospel. But there's a ditch on the other side of that road, too. And that is the, the place that we get to where we have no compassion to those that are suffering. I know we think we're going to do away with it, but we won't. The Lord said, the poor you'll have with you always. And I do believe the Lord has pity on those. I, people always say, well, the Lord helps those that can help themselves. You find that in the Bible for me. The Lord, in fact, does not help those that can help themselves. The Lord, in fact, helps those that can't help themselves. And so there's some compassion that we ought to have. He says, The women of my people, verse 9, have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted. It shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction. He says, you're kicking, you're, you're uh, un unhousing. I don't know if that's a word, but I used it. You're... You're, uh, you're dislocating, dislodging women and children, kicking them out of your house. And then he says this. He says, arise and depart, for this is not your rest. He says, this isn't what I had in mind for you when you entered Canaan. You know, the Hebrew writers likens that, that rest that, uh, that the Sabbath pictured for us and that rest that the entering into the promised land pictured for us uh, as the rest that we have in, in Jesus Christ. And it's evoking that same language. God says there's a rest for you. There's a place. They were a nomadic people all through the wilderness. And then they come into the promised land and they can set down roots and they can put down tent stakes and they can rest and build a life. And he says, this is not the rest that I had in mind for you. He says, get up and leave the, 
the land because it's polluted. If you stay here, you're going to be destroyed. By the way, they didn't heed that, and that's why they lost the temple when the Babylonians came in. He says, If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. That's sarcasm. God is a sarcastic God. Not all the time, but some of the time he is. And God's being sarcastic. He's saying, if, if you get someone in here uh, that, that in the spirit of falsehood and deception will tell you that it's the will of God for you to drink wine and strong drink, he said, you'd make them a prophet. You'd make them a prophet. They'd be the prophet of this people. They're the exact kind of person you're looking for. And there's some churches and some places where the more carnal a preacher they can get, the better. Because uh, there's this little agreement that they have. You, if the preacher won't point out our sin, we won't point out his sin, and we'll all have a good time on Sundays. And so he says that'd be the, pro- the prophet of this people. Then in verse number 12 uh, and 13, something interesting happens. Uh, we see hope for the remnant. Now remember, as you look at that picture that I gave you, there, there's certain things that almost seem schizophrenic the way that they that, that the minor prophets operate, because all of a sudden he looks past and looks far into the future and sees something remarkable. The Lord says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra. Basra was a place that was well known for its flocks of sheep, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker is come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it, and their king shall pass before them, and the Lord on the head of them. In the midst of all the awfulness that Micah is seeing, almost like a, like a, a rainbow in the sky or a silver lining around a cloud, God gives him a vision of the day when the Lord is going to lead his people back into Israel, he'll be the breaker. That's what he's called there. He's called the breaker, the one at the head that's leading his people back into their nation, that is pushing aside all of the Gentile people and pushing aside all of the obstacles and is leading his people. And let me just say this, just a simple practical application. What a blessing it is that in the midst of all this that the Lord is is condemning and, and judging, that, that he gives a general reminder that he's still not left his people. Still loves him. He's still got a future for him. Still got a plan for him. I'm thankful to know no matter how bad I mess up, God still loves me. He might have to judge me, but he still loves me. And that judgment will always be tempered by love. Always. That's what will gauge and set the place to which God will judge me. Is because he loves me, he'll judge me. And he'll never judge me beyond what I need because he loves me. Look at what it says, verse number 1 of chapter 3. We enter into the second message. Evidently, the first message uh, did not get their attention. And so we enter a second message. And this message is this. It is a promising message that a deliverer is coming. Now, as we look at this, we're going to... It's going to seem a little schismatic. But I want you to look in chapter number 3. We probably won't read everything, but I do want to read just the first few verses. And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel. Is it not good, is it not for you to know judgment? Who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them, and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones, and chop them in pieces, as for the pot, and as flesh within the cauldron. Now remember who he's talking to, the heads of Jacob. He says, shouldn't you know what good judgment is? But how are you behaving? Now again, it took me a minute to really see this the way it needs to be seen. But let's let's just, we'll do a little exercise. If you were to see someone and they uh, had a meat cleaver in their hand, they had some sort of dead animal, chicken or maybe maybe beef or a lamb or something out before you, and they were flaying the meat off of it, and they were chopping it up, and they had a pot over to the side, and they were even chopping up the bones, putting it in the stew. You'd assume one of two things. You'd either assume that person is a cook, or more likely than that, you'd probably assume that person is a butcher. That's the word picture that Mike is drawing for us. He's saying when you ought to be protecting and preserving God's people instead, like some sort of greedy butcher, you're, you're, you're plucking the skin from off them to eat, 
their flesh from off their bones to eat. You're flaying the skin, laying the knife against the bone and getting every single portion that you can. And then you're breaking the bones into pieces and putting them in a pot so that you can have stew. You're literally consuming every portion of these people. And so he says this, Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. You know, the Bible says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know that a lot of times if we treat people without mercy, the Lord won't show us as much mercy as he'd like to. I think there's a lot of people that God has judged not just because of their sin, but because of the spirit of the way that they've treated other people. I learned this very soon in passing, that you better be careful how 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 tight of a line you expect people to walk, because they're going to hold you to that very same line. It's not to say we shouldn't be biblical. It's not to say we shouldn't expect people to, to elevate to a higher plane in their spiritual walk and to do the right thing. When I was a youth pastor, I always tried to preach a little bit above the heads of the young people, and it caused them to study their Bibles and to grow, you know, almost like a giraffe, kind of reaching up to the top to, to get the leaves. I believe in that. I think that's a good thing. But we better learn to have a little mercy in the way we deal with people, because there will come a day when we'll need their mercy. None of us are perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. I don't care who you are or what your track record is. If you've never made a mistake, I promise you, one's coming tomorrow. I mean, we all need mercy. They were treating them without mercy, and the Lord says, so I'm going to treat you the way that you have treated me. He deals with the rest of the sins, and time won't afford us to go through the entire chapter 3, but he catalogs them. You can kind of see it. Uh, he, he goes down through there. He says, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people to, uh, to err. Uh, down in verse number 9, he addresses all the heads of, of Israel. He says, Ye heads of the house of Jacob and prince of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, uh, so on and so forth. He says the heads thereof judge for reward. In other words, they were taking bribes, and the priests thereof teach for hire. Whoever would pay the highest price, the priests would teach the way they wanted, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Uh, they, they were uh, using that which God had blessed them with for money. And the Lord sort of catalogs all of their sins and all of the things that they have done. In chapter number 4, we see another glimpse of promise and of glory. Because uh, the Lord has Micah to look ahead and to see the future of the nation of Israel. In fact, it says in verse number 1, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. Now, we know that, that that phrase, the last days, that's a very dispensational phrase. Uh, it's got connotations to it. The last days, the Hebrew writer said this, but God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And so, in, in a sense, the last days began with the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. We're still in the last days, because Paul said this, know that in the last days perilous times shall come. It's a dispensational term that refers to the period of time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming in power and in glory. And so when he speaks of the last days, he's looking beyond the scope of that which is imminent and immediate, and he's looking to the time when the Lord is going to deliver the nation of Israel. And he gives us about four things uh, that are a blessing here. The first thing about the kingdom is that the kingdom's to be supreme. So it's going to be exalted above all of the other hills. And you'll, if you've got a Scofield Bible, it's right here divided out for you. The kingdom is to be universal. It says, And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's to be a peaceful kingdom. He shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Let me just give you this. I don't know if everybody knows this, but this is an important thing to understand. Not everybody during the millennial kingdom is going to be saved. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the world is going to be populated during the millennial kingdom. And in fact, whenever Satan is released from the bottomless pit, he's going to go to the four corners of the world. We know the world doesn't have corners, but it's saying directionally, like a compass, go to every area of the world and uh, gather people to the battle of Gog and Magog. 
There will be plenty of people that are born in the tribulation period and born after the tribulation period. The, the millennial kingdom is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky ethereal thing where people are, you know, everybody's standing around in white robes and singing. Uh, but it's very much a functioning society and a functioning earth. And in that time, the Lord's going to sit upon the throne of David. And he's going to rule in justice and in judgment because he's sitting upon the throne. Uh, very, put simply, nations are going to get along. Folks are going to get along. He won't allow anything less than for folks to get along. And at that time, Jerusalem and Israel is going to be the, the capital of the world and the centerpiece. And it's supposed to be a secure kingdom with uh, with uh, personal property rights that are guarded. It says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. They're going to have their own house, going to have their own means of living. It says, For all people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That's how you know that it's not necessarily dealing with uh, all saved individuals. Because they, in the secret of their heart, are still going to have their idolatry. Uh, they will not live it openly, because they can't live it openly, but still in the depths of their heart they're going to have idolatry. But the Israelites, you remember, are all turned in righteousness to the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period when he returns in power and in glory. The Bible says a nation will be born in a day. That wasn't talking about 1948. That's talking about the day when Christ returns in power and in glory. And in that time, they're not going to be just born. They're going to be born again as they look on him whom they have pierced. The entire nation of Israel will. And, of course, there will be those that uh, were raptured out before the tribulation took place. And the Bible teaches that if we've been faithful to them, we'll reign with them. So it's going to be a functioning society. But there will still be secret sin in people's hearts. That's why the devil's able to deceive them later on. They'll walk according to their God. But God says of Israel, they'll walk according to the Lord our God. We see in verse 6, In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. The nation of Israel that has been a remnant for so long, he says this, And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. The Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, and that's actually a, a literal monument. I don't believe it's still there, but at that time it was. Uh, in Jerusalem, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord says that's going to be the capital. Now we have another sort of shift in the message. We see in verse number 9, Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pains have taken thee as a woman in travail. You can sort of imagine that Micah is seeing that glorious future kingdom. And all of a sudden, that which is bright and glowing and beautiful and peaceful, clouds begin to move in. And he sees a very different scene. Now the throne is not occupied with the Lord of glory. Now it's an empty throne. And so lamenting for it, he says, Is there no king in thee? In this city is, there, is your counselor perished? For pains have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to... Now, this is one of the most remarkable words in your whole Bible because of the timing. Thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now, you say, why is that remarkable? Well, remember, the world power at this time is not Babylon. In fact, Babylon's pretty insignificant at this time in the world. It wasn't for another, oh, about 150 years that Babylon would, would rise to prominence and be a world empire. At that time, Babylon was nobody. But God tells Micah to write Babylon, so he writes Babylon and says that Judah will be taken captive into Babylon. Israel's judgment is immediate. It's coming soon. But Judah's is going to take a little more time. It won't be the Assyrians that carry Judah away, it'll be the Babylonians. He says this, Now also many nations are gathered against thee. We look to an even further future kingdom. That say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. All of a sudden it is no longer Nebuchadnezzar sitting on the throne that Micah sees, but it's someone else sitting on the throne. 
someone I can't describe because I've never seen him, nor has anyone else. The Bible describes him by this moniker, the beast. And he looks forward into the future kingdom of the Antichrist. That's what he's describing when all the nations during the Great Tribulation will gather against Israel and against Jerusalem and want to see uh, it defiled with idolatry and iniquity and sin and apostasy. And God's going to gather them there. Well, where is he going to gather them? He's going to gather them to the valley of Megiddo. And they think they're coming to thresh Israel. But it says he shall gather them as sheaves into the floor. And what does he say to Jerusalem? He says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. It, it's summarized by that phrase in verse 12, But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. When they gather in that valley, during the tribulation, they're gathering to obliterate Israel. Little do they know that God's gathering them there so that he can obliterate them. And at the head of his army and of his people, he's going to destroy them. And then all of their spoil will belong to the Lord, and it will be used during that kingdom. Chapter number 5, he's not talking about a future kingdom necessarily, but he's talking about a future ruler. Now one of these verses you're going to recognize very immediately, verse 2. But verse 1 says this, now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. Now remember, that, that phrase daughter many times in the, in the prophets is sort of a synonym for city. Every time a city is mentioned in, in the Bible, it's always given, for the most part, always given a, a feminine pronoun and a feminine identity. We still do that today. I mean, uh, for the most part, we, we name ships and things like that after ladies and boats and, and things like that. And cities were the same way. He says that it's going to look like a place of troops in that day. It's going to look like there's only soldiers that live there. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Again, we're pulled back in verse number 1 to the Babylonian captivity. Now, we know that, that when it says the judge of Israel, it's not talking about Christ, because in contrast, in verse number 2, it's going to talk about the coming Messiah. The judge of Israel that's smitten with a rod upon the cheek most likely was Zedekiah, the king of Judah. Zedekiah, you know, was the one that had tried to uh, to mutiny, so to speak, had tried to, to revolt against uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had actually been sort of kind uh, to, to Israel and tried to allow them to stay in at where they were at and tried to allow them to maintain their temple and everything. But Zedekiah bucked against the, the judgment of God from the Babylonians and so they, they took Zedekiah, and very likely what this is, what Micah is seeing is them chasing him down and catching him, striking him with a rod. Uh, but in a figurative way, they, they very much struck him with a rod, because they took Zedekiah, they killed all of his sons, they plucked out his eyes, and they led him in chains to Babylon. And that sort of was the end of the story for the nation of Israel. You do have a remnant that comes back and builds a temple, but their glory at that point departed and has never been back to this day like it was then. Well, what is their hope? He says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up, until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return, unto the children of Israel. He says, what does Jerusalem look like? Jerusalem looks like a city of soldiers besieged and laid waste. And the judge of Israel has been taken captive and smitten upon the cheek. But out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that little town, out of them is going to come forth the ruler. Well, where was Bethlehem, Ephrathah? A lot of important things happened in Bethlehem. You remember that Bethlehem uh, was the place... Uh, close to Bethlehem was where the place where Rachel died, uh, the wife of Jacob. And you remember she died in giving birth to Benjamin. And she named him Benani, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And though there in Judah it would seem as though the, the stage had, had closed and the sun had set upon the nation of Israel, there at that very place where a son of sorrow would have been born, the Son of God's right hand was born. 
That was the place where Ruth fell in love with the kinsman redeemer in Bethlehem. And that was the place where that first great and grand shepherd king was born by the name of David, a man after God's own heart. And so it's fitting in a sense that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. But look what it says in verse 5. Therefore will he give them up. Now, there's some dispute and debate about what that means, but I'll tell you what I think it means. I think what that's saying is this. The lineage of David is going to be given up so that he won't come from Jerusalem. He'll come from Bethlehem. It's not He's not going to come from Jerusalem where you'd expect him to come from. Wouldn't you think the Messiah would have been born in Jerusalem? Or maybe in some other great and grand city, Athens or, or Rome or, or, or probably not Alexandria if we know our, our Bible history, but, but, but one of these great ancient cities. But that wasn't how God works. He wanted him to be born in the city of David because he's a son of David, because he's a shepherd king. And so God allowed for the, the lineage of David to dwindle to such a degree that when it finally gets down to the Messiah, it's vested in a, in a teenage maiden and a Nazarene carpenter. That's pretty humble beginnings. Not much left there, is there? But from there, the Messiah was born. They were given up until when? Until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Until the Messiah was born. And then all of a sudden, remember, we're seeing mountain peaks. We're not seeing valleys. Micah looks far beyond the birth of the Savior and sees the reconciliation of Israel to that next shepherd king, the Son of God. He says, Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. That word Assyrian, I think it's used for two reasons. We know there has never been, this prophecy has never been fulfilled if we take that literally to mean people of the empire uh, of Assyria. But I think it's used in two connotations. One, I think it's used generically just of the enemy. Because at that time for the Israelites, the Assyrian was the enemy. But then I think also it's used collectively to speak of the armies of the Antichrist, that they're going to have the same savagery that the Assyrians had. And it says, This man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds, and eight principal men. I'm going to go ahead and tell you about that phrase, seven shepherds and eight principal men. Um, I think there's more to that verse than I understand. I'm going to have to give you the best answer I can give you. The best answer I can give you, and I do think this is true, is that that's an idiom similar to what Amos said when he said for three transgressions and for four. And that what he's saying is, is that God's going to give seven men to fight against the Antichrist, even eight to fight against the Antichrist. But I think probably if you studied your Bible carefully, uh, you'd probably find out who those seven men are, and you'd probably find out the eighth is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to really study that carefully, you'd find something that the commentators all missed, I'd say. Uh, but I, I can't say that definitively. He says, And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land, and when he treadeth within our borders. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people, as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass, that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. In other words, the Jews are going to be a blessing to people at that time. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people, as a lion among the beasts of the forest. They're not going to be bothered. They're going to be the chief and the, and the prominent nation in that time, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep who if he go through both treadeth down and teareth in pieces and none can deliver. Uh, they're not going to be, uh, uh, you know, the, the world's whipping boy anymore. He says, Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots. And I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds. And I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee. And thou shalt no more worship the work of thy hands. And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee, so will I destroy thy cities. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. He's saying through the tribulation period, Israel will finally be broken from their idolatry. 
They're going to give up the works of their own hands and the worship of the works of their own hands. And finally, they're going to turn to the Lord and the Lord's going to execute vengeance for them. In chapter number 6, we have a final message. I'm just going to touch on it very quickly. It's just two chapters. We see, first off, a warning message in chapters 1 and 2 that judgment is coming. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, we see a promising message that a deliverer is coming. But in chapters 6 and 7, we see a challenging message. And the, the message is this. Trust the Lord now. Trust Him now. You can imagine how bleak and discouraging it must have been. Samaria is going to be destroyed and there's nothing they can do. And God is going to bring sure judgment upon us. But it's because of that that the Lord commands them to turn to Him in repentance. Here we have the entrance, the way, the introduction that Micah likes to use. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy in the strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. The Lord sort of pulls them into the courtroom, as he does many times in the word of God. And, and he calls the mountains and, and the heavens to be witnesses. You know, that, a lot of times through the Old Testament, that language is used. But, you know, bear the heavens or call the heavens to bear witness against us. A lot of times Old Testament patriarchs, when they make a covenant, they call the heavens to bear witness against them. And the Lord says, all right, I want the, the heavens to listen to my indictment, to my criticism, to my controversy with the nation of Israel. And he speaks tenderly to them. He says, what have I done to you? Where have I wearied you? Testify against you. I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He says, I've done all this for you, and yet you have not served me. There's something very interesting in these next few verses, and I won't touch on it. He says, O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. This isn't recorded elsewhere in Scripture. But evidently when Balak formulated this relationship with Moab, or with, uh, with Balaam, and he wanted Balaam to curse the children of Israel, and they sort of formulated a friendship, evidently this conversation took place. We don't know when, but it is recorded here in the book of Micah. Uh, Balak says this to Balaam, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Evidently, this pagan king of Moab said to Balaam, said, How can I appease the God of Israel? How can I appease Jehovah? He says, what if I, what if I gave him ten thousands of rivers of oil, a, a, a Nile or a Tigris or a Euphrates of oil or, or, or multitudes of calves? What can I give God to be okay with him? How does Balaam answer? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Now, why does the Lord say this? I mean, it seems a little odd, doesn't it? Just out of nowhere. Well, you have to sort of assume, this is one of these things, you ever watch Jeopardy? You ever watch, come on, raise your hand if you watch Jeopardy. I know you're asleep, but it's okay. Okay, you know how Jeopardy works. You get the answer and you have to guess the question, right? Well, the Lord sort of gives us the answer and we can guess the question. The nation of Israel is coming to the Lord. Now, God is pleading for Israel to turn to him. And you sort of imagine that Israel has come to the Lord and they don't have a real good sense of how, how dark their sin is. And so they say, okay, Lord, how much do we owe you for our sin? What do we do to make it right? I've come to God that way. I'm sure you have. And so it tells this parable. It says, well, Balak asked that one time. And Balaam answered him and said, you know what to do. Live right. Do justly. Love mercy. Be good to those around you. And walk humbly. Don't be lifted up in pride. This is not to say that this is the way a sinner can gain salvation, because we know that you can't work and earn your salvation. But if you want to be, if you're saved already and you want to be right with God, it's very simple. You got to live right. 
You got to do right. There's nothing you can do to buy him off. You just There's no shortcuts. You just have to live right. It says, The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable? Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? He's saying, the way that you deceive people and are bought off, he's saying the Lord doesn't operate like that. For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, in making thee desolate because of thy sins. Thou shalt eat, but not be satisfied, and thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee, and thou shalt take hold, but not deliver, and that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. Thou shalt not sow, but thou shalt not, or thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil, and sweet wine, but thou shalt not drink wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept, and all the works of the house of Ahab. Omri had uh, introduced newer levels of idolatry that they'd never had. And then Ahab did the same thing. He says, your idolatry is still there. And you walk in their counsels, that I should make thee a desolation and the inhabitants thereof in hissing. Therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. He says, you ought to turn to me first off in spite of the indictment. Even though, I, I, even though I'm offended, even though you're guilty, even though you've done wrong, even though you've sinned, you ought to turn to me. And isn't it funny that when we do wrong, sometimes we want to run, when really we ought to be running to the Lord. And he says, in spite of the sentence, even though I'm going to judge you, or maybe because I'm going to judge you, you ought to turn to me. Chapter number 7, you have a beautiful picture of the Lord's mercies. And you see in these passages, Micah begins by woeing himself, woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits as the great gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. He says, I've looked around that I might find someone righteous, but it's like everything's been picked through and picked clean, and there's no one righteous left. He says, The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hurt every man his brother with, uh, they hunt every man his brother with a net. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward. Again, you have bribing. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. It says the best out of them is harming their brother and harmful to him. Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. He says everything's so wicked that people can't even trust those that live with him. In other words, the Lord says that you ought to turn to me because I've been merciful to you and I could have destroyed you sooner. I've given you opportunity, but it's not gotten better, it's gotten worse. Micah says, yeah, Lord, I agree, it's gotten worse. Micah says, Therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And this is sort of not just the voice of Micah, but of all the remnant of righteous Jews in the last days. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her, which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. What you have is a picture of the nation of Israel that's finally accepted the judgment of God. They say, I'm just going to trust God. Not, I'm not just going to trust God to deliver me. I'm going to trust God to chastise me. And in the midst of my chastisement, I'm going to turn to him. That's what you see in the last days. You can go on through the rest of the chapter at your leisure, but what you have is a picture here of the Lord's mercies on the nation of Israel. How that He is going to deliver them and strengthen them and build a nation once again. And uh, that's sort of been the theme of almost all the minor prophets. And the encouragement that it gives me tonight as we close is this. 
when I've sinned and when I've done wrong, it doesn't have to stay that way. I may have to face the judgment of God. And I do believe God still judges His people. Don't think because we're under grace that God doesn't judge His people. We were reading just last night when we took the Lord's Supper that if we judge ourselves, we shall not be judged. Oftentimes we won't judge ourselves, so judgment beginneth at the house of the Lord. But just because God has been heavy-handed with you doesn't mean He doesn't love you. It doesn't mean He doesn't have something for you. In fact, it means that very thing. If God, listen, if God was going to throw you away, He wouldn't waste the time it takes to chastise you. The very fact that He chastises you is because He's got plans for you. My daddy whipped me not because He was done with me, but because He knew He had to deal with me in the future. Amen? He wanted me to obey and do right. 